Welcome to the April Journal Club podcast. We are joined by Professor Peter Cameron, Academic Director for the Alfred Emergency and Trauma Centre and Emergency Physician Dr Divya Khanna. We will review four papers today covering topics of pre-hospital resuscitation of trauma patients with blood products, electroposition for cardioverting AF, ICC versus PICTEL use for traumatic hemothorax, and how pain scores impact the prediction of patient outcome by triage scores. Let's get started with the first paper. Paper one. Our first paper today is titled Resuscitation with Blood Products in Patients with Trauma-Related Hemorrhagic Shock Receiving Pre-Hospital Care, REFIL, a multi-center, open-label, randomized controlled phase three trial by Crombie and et al. The clinical question was, is pre-hospital administration of packed red cells and lyophilized plasma, lyoplas, superior to 0.9% sodium chloride in resuscitating patients with trauma-related hemorrhagic shock? This study was performed over six years from 2016 to 2021. It's a multi-center, open-label, parallel group, randomized controlled trial with allocations concealed and primary outcome assessors blinded. The target population included adults over 16 years of age with trauma-related hemorrhagic shock and hypotension, defined as systolic blood pressure of less than 90 or absent radial pulse. Patients who had already been transfused blood products prior to assessment for eligibility have a known refusal to receive blood products or have an isolated head injury without evidence of hemorrhage were excluded. In the intervention group, participants received up to two units each of packed blood cells or lyoplasts. In the, in the comparison group, participants received up to four 250ml bags of 0.9% sodium chloride. For both groups, the interventions were administered until either hospital arrival, a return of systolic blood pressure to 90 or more, or when a radial pulse was palpable. If blood pressure decreased on the way to the hospital, treatment was reinstigated. The primary outcome was a composite of episodic mortality or impaired lactate clearance or both. Secondary outcomes were rates of transfusion-related complications in the first 24 hours after ED arrival, serious adverse events, or treatment-related deaths. As there is few existing data for the composite primary outcome available, sample size was determined by discussions between investigators and panel of international experts and informed by systematic review of pre-hospital blood product transfusion. A 10% absolute difference in the primary outcome was considered a clinical meaningful outcome. So to detect a 10% difference between groups with 80% power and type 1 error of 0.05, 438 participants was required. And allowing for attrition, it was determined that 490 participants in total were needed. Later in the study, Data Monitoring Committee had further meetings that decided to frame power calculations based on relative risk rather than absolute risk, but the original sample size was unchanged. So what were the findings? Trial recruitment was stopped before it achieved the intended sample size of 490 participants due to disruption caused by the COVID pandemic. Only 432 participants were assigned to the Packed cell lyoplas or to the 0.9% sodium chloride group. The composite primary outcome occurred in 64% of participants randomly assigned to the packed cell lyoplas and 65% of the patients assigned to 0.9% sodium chloride group, with an adjusted risk difference of negative 0.025%, with 95% confidence interval of negative 9 to 9 and a p value of 0.996. Rates of transfusion-related complication in the first 24 hours after ED arrival were low and similar across 
both the treatment groups of 7%. Um, only one rare serious event, adverse event in each treatment group occurred and there were no treatment-related deaths. So the authors concluded that the study did not show that pre-hospital packed red blood cell lioplast resuscitation was superior to 0.9% sodium chloride for adult patients with trauma-related hemorrhagic shock. So, Peter, this is a well-designed study asking an important clinical question, but it didn't have a positive finding for the primary outcome. What are your thoughts on the study and the findings? Um, well, I do love uh, a good RCT. Um, I I had uh, a lot of trouble with this study because it should be an excellent study, and as you say, there were some uh, great elements to it. But... Um, I, I, after I read the study, I came away disappointed. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So basically they had an outcome measure. I think the population was all right, uh, you know, as in uh, the, the group who were interested in a, a patients with, um, you know, low blood pressures because that's basically what we measure pre-hospital. We don't measure other things. Uh, but I guess, in, again, in terms of the population, it was an urban population, small transport times, like, you know, 20 minutes or something. Um, you know, what can happen in 20 minutes? Not much. So um, so that's the first thing, the population. Then the intervention, I think, is reasonable. I think most people would go with blood cells versus not. But again, because of the short transport time, the intervention, two units of blood will, in fact, they only gave one and a half units of blood not going to make a lot of difference. Um, and then the outcome measure, you know, I don't know what, who the consensus was amongst, but the clinicians I speak to, lactate clearance isn't the first thing that springs to mind when I'm trying to uh, resuscitate a patient pre-hospital. So it, it's a sort of a nonsense. Um, the mortality, however, is not a nonsense, but it wasn't powered to uh, test mortality, so it's not really a mortality study. In saying that, there was one uh, thing that piqued my interest, and that was the um, death within three hours was different, but not statistically so, 16% versus 22%. If that was powered to detect that difference and there was, in fact, a 6% difference, that would have really interested me uh, in the death within three hours group. So there's this study like many you know peaks interest but in no way answers the important clinical questions that i guess uh both pre-hospital emergency physicians would ask uh with regard to pre-hospital um uh resuscitation the other thing i guess you know we talked about less than two units of blood being given they even you know like there was 430 mils of fluid given even before randomization plus TXA, uh, which isn't routinely given in Australia. So, uh, you know, it, it, there are so many sort of what if, uh, how about, uh, you know, could we type questions. Um, but really in terms of will this change my practice? Well, uh, the only thing it does do is say that really in you know a few short minutes giving blood doesn't make a lot of difference but if we're talking about the sort of pre-hospital times we have in australia like um you know say uh two or three hour transport times th this this doesn't 
really help us in saying, well, yeah, pre-hospital blood's essential or pre-hospital blood plus lyophilized plasma is essential. So, mm. yeah, it's a it's a bit of a nothing study, uh, but, you know, great, um, great methodology, great uh, effort in putting it all together, mm. uh, but I'm sort of left empty. What about you, Divya? Um, leaving out the lactate clearance, I thought there was enough merit in the study um, with, you know, what was it, like 18, 8 of um, the patients dying in the PAC red blood cell group, but 99 um, dying in the normal saline group. So I agree. I think there is some, uh, it's pointing towards something that, you know, could be um, evidence-based, but I just am a bit disappointed that they've used that lactate clearance. I mean, 88 to 99, that's uh, out of 200 patients each roughly. I thought, um, you know, that it wouldn't be significant for us if we're going to prevent 10 or 11 deaths. Um, so that's five to every 100. That's um, a reasonable amount. And I agree the times to arrival to ED were very, very short compared to Australia. Well, it's time from randomisation. So the pre-hospital times, I mean, our pre-hospital times uh, you know, an hour and a half or so, you know, across the whole of major trauma um, in Victoria. But I think the point here is that, you know, obviously it's time from randomization, which is effectively the intervention time that a paramedic would have. Mm. Um, and, and that is short. Uh, I think it was, uh, what was it? 30, 37 minutes uh, and 35 minutes. So, like they spend more time than that on the ramp at the moment. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> um, um, Divya, so a little bit about study des- the study design of this um, paper. What do you think about using composite outcome and just using composite outcomes in studies in general? I think in this case the composite outcome was a little bit um, – shall I say, irrelevant, like Peter has pointed out, with the mm. lactate clearance. Yes. Um, you can sort of see it's a, is a, sometimes you think it's a statistical gimmick because you want to try and get a study powered and, and get um, good um, uh, statistical re- relevance. But, mm. you know, death definitely is a um, an important outcome to measure in this population. Um, and that was then combined with um, a lactate clearance, which I thought was... Um, yeah, quite <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Mm. Safe to say that this won't really change our practice currently. Right. But there are some studies where they have, you know, composite outcomes that are that you know make it relevant. And you go, yeah, yeah it's either this um, or a combination of two outcomes. Mm. Um, I just think in this study, um, the chosen outcomes were um, not really that important. Mm. I mean, given the frequency of death, uh, I, I'm not sure why. Well, I do know why, but um, they could have used death um, mm. and and early death, uh, which would have been more relevant because, you know, mm-hmm. um, the late deaths may or may not relate to um, uh, what happens pre-hospital, but the early deaths often do relate to pre-hospital intervention. Awesome. Let's move on to the second paper then. Paper two. Our second paper is titled Enterolateral versus Anterior-Posterior Electroposition for Cardioverting Atrial Fibrillation by Schmidt A.S. et al. The clinical question was, is either anterior-lateral or anterior-posterior electroposition superior to the other for cardioverting atrial fibrillation? It's a multi-centre, open-label, randomised controlled trial. 
Target population included adult patients more than 18 years old with AF who were scheduled for elective cardioversion and had received sufficient anticoagulation or an echo documenting the absence of intracardiac thrombi. Patients with arrhythmias other than AF and treated hypothyroidism, known or suspected pregnancy, and those previously enrolled in the trial were excluded. The intervention group received cardioversion shocks using anterior, anterior lateral electroposition. Shocks delivered until sinus rhythm was restored or up to a maximum of four shocks using escalatic energy shocks of 100 joules, 150 joules, 200 joules, and 360 joules. In the comparison group, patients received cardioversion shocks using anterior-posterior electrode positioning. The primary outcome was proportion of patients in sinus rhythm one minute after the first shock. The secondary outcomes were proportion of patients in sinus rhythm one minute after final shock, up to four shocks, and cardioversion efficacy at discharge two hours after cardioversion. The safety outcomes were number of patients with arrhythmic events, skin redness, and patient-reported periprocedural pain. So what were the findings? The primary outcome, which is returning to sinus rhythm after first shock, occurred in 54 patients assigned to anterior lateral electropositioning, 33% assigned to anterior-posterior electropositioning, corresponding with a 22% difference and a number needed to treat of five. Anterior lateral electropositioning resulted in a significant reduced number of shocks applied when compared with anterior-posterior electropositioning. Secondary outcome were number of patients in sinus rhythm after final shock, and this was 93% in anterior lateral compared to 85% in anterior posterior positioning, with a risk difference of 7%, corresponding to a number needed to treat of 14. Safety outcomes were similar between treatment groups. The authors concluded that anterior lateral electropositioning resulted in significantly more patients obtaining sinus rhythm when compared with anterior posterior electroposition for cardioverting AF. So Divya, I found the study's findings a bit surprising as AP positioning was traditionally taught to us as possibly being better than anterolateral positioning. What do you think about the study and their findings? Um, I think they're somewhat uh, useful for ED clinicians um, with the caveat that this is obviously not an ED study and the initial low joules and the incremental joules that we used, but mm. yeah, it does smash that theory that um, you know AP positioning is a, a better, um, a, you know, better conductivity for um, delivering shocks. Um, I'd be interested to repeat this in an ED setting. Um, however, I, I would be a bit concerned about you know getting a, a sample size because um, in ED, most patients that present with um, AF unfortunately are over the um, cutoff time duration for ED cardioversion, or they have confounding um, mm. factors like infection and so on that makes it um, the rates of reversion much harder. Mm. And yeah, and unfortunately in this study, they um, all the patients were in an outpatient setting, so it really doesn't correlate with that ED population. Um, so, Peter, will this study change your practice, do you think? Yeah, I, I was pleasantly surprised by this study. Um, you know, there are so many studies that don't have a, either an adequate sample size or um, measure the wrong things. As Divya's mentioned, it's not our population, but it does give an indication of um, I guess the impact uh, of the shock on arrhythmias. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that it would necessarily apply to say VF or um, VT, for example. Um, mm -hmm. 
it might be that it varies, you know, according to the type of rhythm. Uh, mm. But certainly if we were doing cardioversion for atrial fibrillation in the ED, I, uh, I think it would be almost unethical not to do a, um, a, an anterolateral approach to that now, given this, you know, the significance of this study, um, mm. which would make it hard to do a RCT in the ED. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're already... It helps us, doesn't it? Because um, it's always or almost always much harder to get an AP placement mm. in mm. someone who's... Um, so I think this is more reassuring yeah. for us. Mm. Mm. Awesome. Okay, let's move on to the third paper. Paper three. The small 14 French percutaneous catheter, PCAT, versus large 28 to 32 French open chest tube for traumatic hemothorax, a multicenter randomized clinical trial by Calvertanu N. et al. The clinical question was, a small 14 French percutaneous catheters, PCAT, non-inferior to large 28 to 32 French open chest tubes in treatment of traumatic hemothorax. It's a multi-center RCT performed over six years from 2015 to 2020. The target population was patients who were 18 years or older, had a traumatic hemothorax or hemopneumothorax that required drainage. Patient in extremis for example, with hemodynamic instability that required emergent tube placement and those who refused to participate were excluded. The intervention was insertion of a small 14 French percutaneous catheter. The comparator was a large open chest tube insertion. The primary outcome was failure rate defined as retained hemonemothorax requiring a second intervention. The secondary outcomes were daily drainage output, tube days, intensive care unit level of stay, hospital level of stay, and insertion perception experience, the IPE score, on a scale of 1 to 5, 1 being tolerable and 5 being the worst experience. Sample size determination was based on a pre-specified non-inferior margin of 15% based on previous failure rates for chest tubes of 30% and for percutaneous catheters of 15%. The sample size was determined to be 95 patients for each arm with 80% power and one-sided alpha of 0.05. However, the study was cut short due to prolonged period of enrollment and interruption by COVID outbreak. In the end, there were only 56 in the percutaneous catheter group and 63 in the chest tube arm. So what did they find? After exclusion, 119 patients participated in the trial. Baseline characteristics between two groups were, were similar. Failure rate was 11% in the percutaneous catheter group versus 13% in the chest tube group with a p-value of 0.74. Secondary outcomes were similar between groups. Except in the percutaneous catheter group, patients reported lower insertion perception experience, IPE scores, with a median of 1, i.e. tolerable experience, versus chest tube with a median of 3, i.e. was a bad experience. So the authors concluded that small caliber 14 French percutaneous catheters are equally as effective as 28 to 32 French chest tubes in the ability to drain traumatic hemothorax with no difference in complications. So there were quite a few flaws in this study design and there was also significant conflict of interest um, with the study being partially funded by Cook Medical LLC, the company that makes pigtails. Um, Peter, what are your thoughts on the study design and its findings? It's an interesting study. I mean, hmm. um, 
it, it raises a lot of questions, I guess. It's a small number of patients uh, and obviously um, a high degree of allocation bias. It, it, it relates not to emergency medicine, uh, but to ward management. So these were stable patients who sort of had a bit of a collection the next day or whatever that, you know, um, they're not the patients that we see. That's the first thing. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, the, um, and, and so the other part about that is that I would have assumed that the type of um, haemothorax they had had already, um, the, the haemoglobin had already consolidated out and so you had basically a serous fluid yeah. as opposed to blood, uh, fresh bleeding blood that you would get in the resus room. So I'm not sure how relevant it is to us when we've got a major trauma and we want to whack in a catheter, um, you know, in the resource room, I'm still going to put in uh, a big catheter and I'm going to put it in direct with direct vision because I wanted to see it go in. Um, so that's that's that. I think in terms of elective, um, uh, you know, um, relief of an effusion, I think uh, what, what they show is that for a stable patient, um, it's it's probably okay um, to do that, um, but that's not emergency medicine. Um, mm. There's a small sample size. The the, the score they've got is non-validated and a bit wonky, um, mm. but nevertheless, I mean, blind Freddie could see that putting in a 14 French uh, catheter is going to be less painful than a 28 open. Um, so, I, you know, it doesn't matter what score you use. I think it's probably... Uh, more comfortable for the patient to do it that way. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm not sure it helps us that much, to be honest. Hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting that they um, actually excluded the patients who are hemodynamically unstable, which are the patients that we mainly put in chest tubes for in ED. Um, what do you think, Divya? Um, will this study mm. change your practice? <laughs> and, uh, you know, MD preference. Was an exclusion yeah. of yeah. like patients. Yeah. Um. I mean, it for us in practice, especially those patients uh, who have high injury severity scores and who are unwell, you know, they'll inevitably need to go to theatre or need intubation and ventilation. So it's kind of irrelevant whether um you know we even consider a pigtail because they'll need a large bore chest mm -hmm. tube um mm -hmm. for those reasons um and like peter said the majority of the uh, patient cohort that we see um that we insert um chest tubes are in that emergency situation where they excluded them mm. there are very few patients that you know have a ct and are quite well and then there's a subsequent decision made um to put a, a chest tube in and in those patients this i think it does influence me because i agree that um the, um, I mean, the IP scores, you could argue, were a bit, um, you know, a bit of an selection bias as well. But it, it makes sense that, you know, putting a, a pigtail um, is less painful rather than a, a full incision and an open um, a chest tube that, that's being put in. There was, I think, more conflict of interest that they declared with the principal investigator said, oh, he's had personal experience and friends and family who had yes uh, that's right <laughs> and i think there there is a problem with that i mean i mean with you know the common sense approach you think yes of course the pigtail is going to be less painful but they mm. didn't really standardize the analgesics and mm. um, imagine you wouldn't you wouldn't need the same amount of analgesia for a 
um, an open like chest tube rather than just a Seldinger technique. So mm. I think there's flaws in using that IP score to advocate um, for a pigtail insertion. It was a very discussive discussion, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, um, let's move on to the fourth paper. Paper four. Impact of pain assessment on Canadian triage and acuity scale prediction of patient outcomes. The clinical question was, does removal of patient-reported pain from the Canadian triage acuity scale, CTAS, affect the scale's ability to predict admission, ICU consultant, consultation and mortality? Essentially, the aim of the study was to establish how pain as a triage factor affects the ability of CTAS to predict patient acuity. It was a single-centre retrospective observational cohort study performed in a tertiary ED. The target population were all adults aged more than 18 years who visited the Jewish General Hospital ED over June 2017 and Jan 2022. All patient visits prior to COVID-19 pandemic were included. Data post-COVID-19 pandemic was not included as this substantially altered patient population and workflow. There was no sample size done a priori. The intervention was a modified pain-free CTAS algorithm used for each visit in the cohort, assuming that patient had not reported any pain. The comparison was using standard CTAS algorithm, which combined patient-reported pain levels with other data to generate a triage score for each visit. The standard CTAS algorithm has a minimal, minimum level of acuity that must be assigned to a patient based on the severity, location, and chronicity of pain. Primary outcome measure was acuity of patient defined by three variables, which are admission, ICU consultation, and in-hospital mortality within 72 hours on arrival to ED. So what did the study find? A sample of 229,744 patients was analysed. Distribution of standard CTAS scores showed that most visits were assigned to the mid-range CTAS I category 2 22.5%, Category 3, 50%, and Category 4, 21%. The study found that removing pain scale from CTAS algorithm can lower acuity of a case compared to the standard CTAS but can never increase it. Higher pain was slightly negatively correlated with hospital admission, ICU consultation, and 72-hour mortality. Area under the curve of the pain-free CTAS was interpreted as a probability that a model will correctly rank a random visit resulting in an adverse outcome over a random visit that does not result in such an outcome. A difference in the AUC of more than 0.05, corresponding to a 5% probability of misranking such a random pair, was considered as significant. The areas under the curve of the pain-free CTAS was higher than that of the standard scores for all outcomes, including hospital admission, ICU consultation and mortality. The confidence interval of difference in AUC achieved with each CTAS score contained 0.05 for all three outcomes, so the differences were statistically but not clinically significant. The author's conclusion was that the removal of pain scale from CTAS did not reduce its ability to predict hospital admission, ICU consultation, the 722-hour mortality. But this did move a larger number of patients to the less acute triage categories. So this is a pretty interesting study, Divya. Um, what are your general thoughts on using pain score to determine triage category? 
I think we've known for a while um, that pain scores are subjective and um, consistent uh, with what the studies found, you know, um, females in lower age groups report higher uh, pain scores. So um, it's um, obviously a, a patient's perception of their pain and, and need for um, analgesia rather than the objective measures that um, the, the study looked at. So um, there... I don't know what better ways we have to measure um, pain, but mm -hmm. I think there is still a valid component to a patient's perspective of their pain um, in our holistic care to patients. So it's a difficult one to balance, really. Mm. Um, Peter, I know you're not a fan of pain scores in general. Um, can you tell us why is that and what is your general approach to management of patients in ED with pain? <laughs> Yeah, just sorry, just going to the um, study itself first. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I think um, there's there's a problem, I guess, with their conceptual construct in the sense that they're saying uh, because pain scores didn't make any difference to the prediction of admission, uh, ICU consult and mortality, uh, it's sort of not relevant to the uh, triage scale. Mm -hmm. However, um, there is a reason we ask people whether they're in pain at the front desk, and that is if they're in severe pain, we want to treat it because uh, that's actually why they came. And mm -hmm. it's sort of hardly patient-centred care to say, we're well, not going to die from it. You can roll around on the floor in front of me, you know, with pain, with your renal colic or whatever. You're not going to die. See you later. I mean, you would automatically give someone with severe pain uh, a high pain, uh, trio score. I mean, that's just hu hu human. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I think they've sort of forgotten that. It's quite bizarre when you think about it. Mm. Like I've seen cat twos for, um, you know, people with renal colic, and rightly so. Mm. I, I don't think they should be at the front rolling around. Mm. So, yeah, so from that point of view, I mean, certainly pain doesn't indicate the severity of the illness but pain can indicate the urgency of treatment, which is, well, after all, what triage is about. Anyway, anything, you'd the... argue the opposite, wouldn't you? The really sick patients are not... Yeah, it's so sick they're not really... going to complain about <laughs> Yeah, how much pain they're in. So it's a sort of bizarre, you know, when you think about the study, I mean, I don't know, I even know how it got into the journal, but, um, <laughs> but when you think about the... Uh, yeah, so, but going back to your question about pain scores, I... I actually think, you know, they were introduced with the endone epidemic in the 1990s. Um, so oxycodone needed a uh, vehicle uh, to sell. Uh, and so Big Pharma made billions out of it. They're now being sued billions, but um, they made billions out of oxycodone-related products. Um, and they did it by saying, let's stop pain uh, and we'll have a score for it because that's objective in inverted commas. Um, mm. But my view is that um, as a doctor, you go up to the patient and you say, are you in pain? Yes, no. If you're in pain, do you want something for it? Mm. Whether the score is 2 or 10, if the patient doesn't want anything for it, uh, then why should we force it down their throat? Alternatively, if they've got a pain score of four uh, and 
they need some analgesic or they want some analgesic uh, and it's, you know, it, it fits with the clinical picture, then I would give it. It's got nothing mm. to do with the pain score. Mm. So what is the purpose of it? I mean, it's complete and utter bunkum. <laughs> we should stop it. <laughs> what about you, Divya? What do you think about the pain scores? <laughs> They're useful in some populations, say the paediatric populations. Um, I can't really verbalise, but I, I do agree with Peter. Um, not everybody um, that comes to ED needs analgesia and certainly not opioid analgesia, and I think we are over-prescribing. And I feel, and again, anecdotally, that it's more to um, appease our colleagues, whether nursing or other medical um, colleagues that we work with during the shift um, rather than the patient. So if we're targeting patient-centred care, then uh, it really has to be what, what the patient wants and requires to gauge how much analgesia they need. Mm. But, yeah, coming back to the study, I just think mm. this is a very irrelevant um, study that I don't know how it passed the, the pub test, really. Just <laughs> yeah, but it's an interesting study to talk about in the journal club. <laughs> uh, great. Thank you so much, Peter and Divya, for joining us today. We'll see you next time. Mm.